We're going to be in uh, the book of Hebrews tonight, chapter number 10. Hebrews 10, over the last few months, just as I've had an opportunity to open the Word with you, been walking through the book of Hebrews, and so some of you will be familiar with some of the themes that we're going to encounter, at least at the beginning of the night, um, but really what we find is tonight's going to be uh, the, the hinge of the book, if you will. Uh, the book of Hebrews is a fascinating study. It was written to uh, Jewish background Hebrew believers, and they, through this time, um, were fighting and wrestling against uh, Judaism and other false beliefs. And what we find is that the author of this book is confronting these false beliefs with an understanding of the Old Testament in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we come to chapter 10, chapter 10 is kind of the turning point um, in the book of Hebrews. And what we actually find is that chapter 10 is kind of a, uh, it's kind of a microcosm of what the book of Hebrews is doing as a whole. Um, and so what we're actually going to look at tonight, I'm going to give you kind of the, the theme, the organizational element of it. So for those of you who are type A and uh, you have to write everything down and you have to be able to follow along, okay, um, I'm going to give that to you at the beginning and then I'm going to lose you and then I'm going to stop and I'm going to come back to you and then I'm going to lose you again and then I'm going to come back and we'll wind it all up together. How's that sound? Okay. Um, and so it's going to be, we're just going to follow the outline of this passage. We're going to follow uh, the author, try to follow his intent. And so as we open up this chapter, what we're going to find is the first 18 verses really mirror the book of Hebrews to this point. And then what we're going to find is that when we get to verse number 19 through verse, about verse 25, uh, that this is going to kind of, in a lot of ways, mirror the last half of the book. And kind of a way of introduction into the intent and the understanding of this chapter, uh, I want to talk about totally different book um, and kind of get a little bit of understanding about why the author chose to write in this method. Um, there's a book that, uh, it's been out for a little while now. It's called uh, Start With Why by Simon Sinek. Is anyone familiar with that book, Start With Why? Anybody here know that book? Man. Hey, Josh, Phil, he's lying. Okay. Uh, that's not true. Um, Josh, notorious liar. Um, anyone who knows Josh isn't laughing. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. What's it about, Josh? I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, so um, Simon Sinek, start with why. Um, how many of you heard of Simon Sinek? He's not a Christian author, but a motivational speaker. Um, he's an interesting, a lot, kind of a thought leader in some areas. He's got interesting thoughts. Um, like I said, not a Christian, not a Christian book. Uh, but the premise of the book is what, Josh? I'm just kidding. All right. Start with why. All right, nailed it. Nailed it. All right, I'm going to save you guys the 2197 on the hardcover. Here's summary of the book, okay? Two quotes. He says this, there are only two ways to influence human behavior. You can manipulate it or you can inspire it. And then he says this, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. What you do simply proves what you believe. And as we look at this principle, this is not something that um, he invented, this is something that he discovered. And in fact, we find books of the Bible that, have, uh, that are built around this premise that have existed for thousands of years, the book of Hebrews being one of them. And so in many ways, as we look at this book, what we find in chapters 1 through 9 is we find that the author is writing and he is telling us about everything that Jesus has done. Um, if you've been with us before as we talked through the book of Hebrews, what's the theme of the book of Hebrews? Does anyone remember? Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Uh, better than what? Yes. All right? <laughs> that's, that's the book. Jesus is better. And it begins to systematically go in and say, uh, especially this is written to Hebrews, so we have to understand, put on those glasses for just a minute. 
Uh, he's better than the prophets that had brought the word before. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than the sacrifices. He's better than the tabernacle, the temple. He's better than the high priests. He's better than Abraham. And so just piece by piece, he's stepping into the Jewish mindset and saying, Jesus is better. The things that you uh, worship and look to, Jesus is better. The things that you're clinging on to, even though God has replaced them with something else, Jesus is better. And so throughout these first nine chapters, uh, the author is just digging in and saying, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. And then here in chapter 10, it kind of recaps. So we're going to recap for the first few minutes we're together. And then he gets to, okay, so now that we believe that Jesus is better, now what? How does, that, how does that actually affect us? And so the pattern that we're going to look at, the pattern that we're going to look at is this. We find at the beginning of the book, we find what we call indicatives. Indicatives. So these are truths about God. Truths about Christ, about how he revealed himself to us, about his plan of redemption for us. The first nine chapters are filled to the brim with indicative. Now, if you go home and you decide to study out um, what you'll find, you'll find there are a few passages that we would call the warning passages of Hebrews. Um, Those are the only segments that we really see this veering away. Chapters 2, 4, 6, 10, back half of 10 that we're not going to cover tonight, and then 12. Those are the only times in the book of Hebrews, especially the first half, that you're going to see a divergence from just this Jesus is better, Jesus is better, indicative, indicative, indicative. This is truth, this is truth, this is truth. But what we find about midway through chapter number 10, verse number 19 specifically, is we find this crossover from indicative to imperative. So all of a sudden it goes from this is true to this is how we live and act based on the truth. And so because all of these things are true to this point, how do we live? How do we go about our lives, day to day? How does this bear weight on us? What do we do in response to this truth? And so what the author of Hebrews does is he starts with why. Why do we do what we do? Why do we live the way that we live? Why do we go about these things? And he says, because all of these things are true, this is how we respond. And so tonight, we're going to just see a a scaled-down version of this play out in chapter number 10. And what he really begins with is he begins with explaining to us how broken we truly are. Because he starts with the truth that we are guilty. We are guilty. Watch this in verse number one. And really what this is going to look like, the first 18 verses, um, think of it almost uh, maybe as a reading with commentary, okay? I'm just going to walk through these verses with you, and I'm going to kind of give some input, some understanding, some clarity, and then we're going to hit uh, the crux of our message around verse 18, verse 19, okay? Watch this in verse number one. Now, really what we find here is we find this weak substitute. It's incapable of resolving guilt. Watch verse number one. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come. Remember, if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about this shadow substance, right? Old Testament law, shadow. No, no power, no real ability, but, but you can see the shape of something that exists. It's kind of casting a shadow on this. New Testament substance, Jesus. Jesus is better. So for the law, having a shadow of good things to come, a.k.a. Jesus, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So what's he saying? He's saying there's no way that these sacrifices can make those bringing them perfect, whole, complete. For then, if it could, would they not have ceased to be offered? 
So once he, what he's saying is this. He's making a really great argument just on the fact that these offerings have to be repeated. He says, hey, if these offerings were able to forgive sins and make people right with God, if these things that they are doing, if these works were able to actually bring salvation, why would they keep doing them? Because salvation's once for all. If these were effective, why would you have to keep applying it? So what he's saying is this. The cure in itself, in the fact that it has to be repeated, this cure is insufficient. Let's keep going. Watch what it says here. Why, why does he say that? End of verse number two. Because that the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more conscience. And that word conscience meaning awareness, as we think about our conscience. Their conscience would have been completed. There would be no more conscience of sins. You know that guilt, that shame that we feel when we, when we sin? He's saying, listen, at the end of a good and perfect sacrifice, that doesn't have to be carried around anymore. And we're going to get to that. We're going to get to the implications of that for us today because we do have a good and perfect and final sacrifice. But he says, if that would have been possible, then why would they keep offering it over and over and over again? It doesn't make any sense if these were perfect. Because why? The people offering those sacrifices, if they were effective, would be functionally, positionally innocent. They would have been absolved from guilt. Their debt paid, they would have been free to go. But that's not the case. Watch verse number three. But in those sacrifices, there's a remembrance again made of sins every year. Specifically, this offering that's being mentioned here is the, what we call the Day of Atonement, or uh, in Hebrew, Yom Kippur. And this is the holiest day on the Jewish calendar where they would go in and they would offer a sacrifice before God in the Holy of Holies. And we're going to come to that here in just a minute. So we find this weak substitute. Watch this, verse number four. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. He just says it as clear as can be. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sins. And, I, and we've spoken about this before, so I don't want to take a ton of time in it. But if this is your first time with us, or maybe you missed it, I don't want to be having gaps in your understanding, so I want to explain this. Uh, these offerings are, in many ways, a stand-in for our, it's a shadow of the things to come in Jesus, but it's also a stand-in of the religious things that we are able to do to try to accomplish salvation. And so simultaneously, they're a shadow of good things to come, but they don't bring salvation in and of themselves, okay? These are pointing to the way that salvation actually comes, the Messiah, a.k.a. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so as he's speaking these things, as the author is writing these things, he's saying, hey, these sacrifices have no way to bring about remission, forgiveness, atonement for sins. And the fact is that not only do the sacrifices not have it, there's no kind of penance, no kind of thing that you and I can do to bring absolution from sin. We can't work our way to it. We're incapable of it. The fact is, is that we stand before God guilty. Romans chapter 3 declares us so. He says, if you, uh, the, the Bible throughout the whole scripture says, if you've offended at one point, you're guilty of the whole law. And so as we come before God, we have to understand that we are broken, that we are guilty. There's nothing that we are capable of doing that's able to change that fact. But enter Jesus. Watch this in verse number 5. The author writes this. This is our willing sacrifice, the willing sacrifice that we see here. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, this is Christ, he saith, sacrifice and offering, thou wouldest not. So he's speaking, uh, this is Jesus, God the Son, speaking to God the Father. He says, sacrifice is an offering thou wouldest not. And if you're reading this um, with the average Jewish mindset of this day, this is a, it sounds like a new thing to you. But in fact, this is something that God has said time and time again, even throughout the Old Testament scriptures. 
Even in the Old Testament scriptures, offerings and sacrifices, these are a shadow of things to come. These are not the things themselves. Follow along with me really quickly. You don't have to turn there. If you want to write these down, you can go study this for yourself. 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel says to Saul, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice. Psalm 50, verse 14, David writes, Offer unto God thanksgiving, pay thy vows unto the Most High. Verse, Psalm 51, 16 and 17, Thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. That is not in burnt offering, but rather, watch this, verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Hosea writes this in chapter 6, I desired mercy, not sacrifice, speaking for God. The knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And so we see this theme even throughout the Old Testament, kind of counterintuitive sometimes to our understanding. We see this theme that burnt offerings and sacrifices are not the thing. God says these are, this is only one aspect of it. This is a shadow. This is something that's supposed to be directing you to me. But you're bringing these offerings, you're bringing these sacrifices, but your heart is so far away from me. It's as if these people, these Jewish people are coming and saying, oh, well, I sacrificed to God, so now I can go do what I want to do. I've given my penance, I've done my atonement, I've gone through the rituals, I've done the things I'm supposed to do, now I can go live the way that I want to live. And that's not how God intended it. God says, that's, if you're not even going to obey, why bring the sacrifice? If you're, gonna, if you're not even going to listen to me, if you're going to go serve other gods, if you're going to go uh, disobey everything else, if you're not going to seek after me the other 364 days a year, why bring the sacrifice? And so over and over again throughout the Bible, we find this just on repeat. Isaiah says, what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks, lambs, or he goats. Micah wrote, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with thy God? So what is God satisfied with? If all of these things God is not satisfied with, what is God satisfied with? I think it's a fair question, right? What does bring satisfaction? Look at the end of verse number five. Jesus, again, speaking to the Father, a body thou hast prepared for me. A body thou hast prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. What, what, this is Jesus speaking. He says, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. What is he speaking of? What book is he referring to? He's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. He's referring to the writings that had been before him. If you remember, there's an awesome story uh, that takes place on the road to uh, Emmaus, Emmaus Road, and you find that these disciples are uh, followers of Jesus. They begin speaking to him. They begin telling him things that had happened in Jerusalem. And then what does Jesus do? Before they even know it's him, having been resurrected, he begins to go to the Old Testament scriptures and teach them all things concerning himself. And so he speaks to them about how the Messiah had to come, how he would be rejected, how he would be killed, how he would be buried, and how he would raise again for the sins of the people. And he teaches them from these Old Testament scriptures, and they marveled at these things until finally they realized that they were speaking to the resurrected Christ. What did he teach them from? From the Old Testament scriptures. Understand the volumes of the book, the, the, the book of Hebrews is designed to say, hey, listen, it's all about Jesus. It's all pointing to him. He is the fulfillment of everything that has Ben, 
So look at the end uh, of this verse. Let's look at verse number seven. We're going to skip this parenthesis here. Watch this. So this is Christ speaking. Then said, I, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. We see that same phrase repeated twice now. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Watch this. Once for all. How many times did this sacrifice have to be made? One time. This was final. This was the end. This is, this is done. There's no more need for a sacrifice time and time and time again because it's, it's done away. The old is done away. The new has been established. It may establish the second we see in verse number nine. Let's keep reading. Let's press into this deeper. Verse 11, every, high, every priest standeth daily ministering and offering, oftentimes the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, saying he's, he's a better high priest, he's a better sacrifice. He sat down, the work is finished, the work is complete. He's not standing day after day after day and offering the same sacrifices over and over again. One sacrifice for all, seated at the right hand of the Father. From henceforth, expecting, waiting, anticipating till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. He's completed, brought salvation to those who are sanctified. Let's keep going. Let's keep reading this for a second time. There's so much going on here in this passage. We're going to come into it a little deeper here in just a minute. Verse 15, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. After that, he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. So understand this. This is what he's saying. After those days, after, after Christ has come, after the fulfillment of this sacrifice, I will put my law into their hearts, and their minds will I write them. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there's no more offering for sin. So understand, let's watch what just happened here. Verse number 16, he says that he's going to put the law into their hearts and into their minds. He's going to establish his law, not just, not just pen and paper, but he's going to establish and put that law into the hearts and minds of men. We see this fulfilled through what? Verse 15, the Holy Ghost is a witness of this. The Holy Ghost is the, uh, the, the person that completes this promise that's made. But watch this in verse number 17. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. It's very important for us to understand, and this is really what takes us into uh, this curb. So if you imagine everything that's going on here as kind of being a, a road that we're all traveling down, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. We come to chapter number 10. We begin to take this turn from the from the indicative into the imperative. And this really begins when we come here into verses 15 through 18. And especially we see it, we kind of hit that point. Verse number 17, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. This is so, so, so important. This is the crux of this is why Jesus is better. Understand that 
after having been saved through faith in Christ, when God looks at you, what does he see? Does he look at you and does he say, wow, what a failure? Man, that Glenn guy, is he ever going to learn? Oh, man, just, ah. Alan, just over and over, ah, God, ah, man, I just, I keep. When God looks at us, is that, is that his view? And this is so important because I think this is where a lot of Christians, this is where a lot of times, a lot of times we have a head knowledge of the things that I'm about to say, but we don't take these things and actually place them in our hearts, walk out of the room with them, remember them Monday through Saturday, right? It's a Sunday morning thing. When God looks at you, he doesn't see if you are a saved child of God, born again, put your faith in him. God doesn't look at you and see your failures, your mistakes, your faults, your weaknesses. When he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. When he looks at you, he doesn't see everything that you've ever done wrong. He doesn't see the ways that you've disappointed. He doesn't see the guilt and the shame. He sees forgiveness. He sees his son. This is why that's so important, because we have an adversary. And if you remember, our adversary, the devil, has another name that uh, he's referred to. He is the accuser of the brethren. So understand this. Satan wants to defile your reputation before God, before others, and before yourself. Satan wants to go to God and say, man, Kerwin Manus. I know people think he's a good guy, but he's not. Let me tell you about it, God. And he wants to go down the list and say, this is everything that he has ever done. These are the things that he has committed. This is just a list from today. And the fact is, in one sense, he'd be right, right? Because, I mean, Kerwin Manus, all right? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, my list is longer, I promise you, okay? Uh, in one sense, he'd be, he'd be right, right? But when God sees this list, you know what he, you know what he says? He says, I don't know what you're talking about. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, yes, but I don't know what you're talking about. Why? Because the penalty, the payment, the death that's deserved for every one of those things has already been paid by one sacrifice once for all. It's done, it's settled, it's over with. And so before God, you are just as saved, you are just as loved, you are just as holy as that first day that you turned to him in repentance. And so you say, well, but I don't feel so. I don't, I don't understand this. Understand this. Your salvation and your position before God is not based on your feelings. Can we say amen to that? I mean, we'd, be all, we'd all be messed up, right? If my emotional stability were the dependence for my relationship with God, forget about that. We'll get to that in just a second. All right. There's no way. There's no way. If my understanding of my righteousness were the criteria for salvation, I'd be like, I'm out of here. This isn't, this isn't going to work. It's not you, it's me. I mean, it's very, very me, okay? It's a major problem. But when we stand before God, he doesn't remember these iniquities anymore. And it's important for us to, to think even, here's, here's a picture of it that's just so beautiful, and this is coming from the Old Testament text. And so this is something that as these Hebrew believers are reading this, this is something that I think that would come into their minds. On the Day of Atonement, um, kind of the last portion of the ceremony, one of the things that would happen, uh, eh, probably midway through the ceremony, one of the things that would happen is the high priest would come, they would take two goats. They would take two goats. And on these two goats, um, the high priest would, would place his hands 
One goat would be taken and would be, um, become a sacrifice for the sins in the altars. The other would become uh, what was called, and this is where we get the term from, the scapegoat. How many of you guys ever heard the term scapegoat? Oh, that person's a scapegoat. Okay. That's where this comes from. Is this would, they would be the scapegoat. And the high priest symbolically would place his hands on this goat, and they would take it out to the edge of the camp. This originated back um, while they were traveling uh, in the wilderness, worshiping in the tabernacle. They would take it to the edge of the camp, and they would release that goat, and they would chase the goat away from the camp, never to be seen again. And the scapegoat was symbolic of this. The sins of the people placed on the goat, separated from the tabernacle, the place of God, forever, never to be seen again. We have a better scapegoat. His name is Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ took your sin on him, and when he went to the grave with that sin, that sin didn't rise back up with him. That sin's gone. It's dead. It's separated from you once and forever. And so when God says, I remember that sin no more, he means, I remember that sin no more. That sin's not didn't come back tomorrow, doesn't come back the next day. He doesn't go, oh yeah, now I remember. They're wicked, they're a heathen because this. No, that sin is gone. And then watch what he says here in verse number 18. Where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Understand that word remission is not a uh, a band-aid. It's not a temporary solution. This is gone, purified, cleansed forever. Where this is, there's no more offering for sin. And we don't need another offering for sin. And so all of this, all of this, all of this, he's talking about our guilt. He's talking about the shame that we carry, the shame that we bear. And he's about to turn a corner here. Verse number 19, we begin going the other direction because what he's doing now is he's saying, this is what it looks like when you were guilty, when before the Messiah came, before he was here, before he was incarnate, before he revealed himself, this is what things look like. Now he's come. So this is how it looks like, because you're forgiven. This is what it was. This is his plan to fix it. Here we are. So watch as we come into verse number 19. This, this is where, this is where it, it gets really good. Watch this, verse number 19. Having therefore, okay, so this is because we are the recipients of these things. Having therefore, because all of those things, all of those are the why, all of those are the indicative, now the imperative. Because of these things, having therefore boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. This sentence, if you, um, if you were of a Jewish background, if you'd grown up in, in Judaism, if you were uh, a Hebrew believer and you read this sentence, this sentence is kind of nonsensical. You'd say, oh yeah, right. Oxymoron. Holiest and boldness. Those two don't even go together. They don't belong in the same sentence. Here's why. So on that same day of atonement, when, when that scapegoat uh, would be, uh, have, his, have the hands laid on him, another sacrifice would be taken, would be prepared. The high priest would take the blood of this sacrifice. And the high priest, all the time going into this, would be preparing themselves ceremonially for the day of atonement. And so all of this taking place, all this is building up for this day of atonement. Okay, follow me. So everything that's happening uh, in the temple, the tabernacle first and then the temple on a greater scale, uh, existed within uh, the set of walls. And so there's an outer wall, a Gentile court that would later be added. Inside of that is kind of the main courtyard where, the, where Jews believing ceremonially clean Jews could go. So those are a couple caveats that are very important to note. 
You must be ceremonially clean. You must be abiding by the Jewish laws. You must not be defiled in any way. You can come into this outer court. Now, within that, there is a, a building that's called the holy place. And the holy place was not just for people who were ceremonially clean and Jews. This was also only for priests. So there was only a very small subset of this already small subset, right? You had to be ceremonially clean, and you had to be a priest. Otherwise, you're not coming in here. Uh, you want to just, you want to see what it's like inside? Uh, no. All right. You can stay in the court. You can try to catch a peek when someone's going in and out. Best you're going to find. And within that, there was another room that was called the Holy of Holies, or here in Hebrews, he refers to it as the holiest. And this is the place of God. This is the place that God dwelt. And this is all of these things, this tabernacle, this temple later, was symbolic of the throne room and the presence of God. And so within that room rested a cherubim on either sides of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is, uh, had on top of it uh, a gold uh, plate um, with, with two cherubim, two angels on either side of it as well. And that plate was what was called the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest, only the high priest, not a, a second-tier priest, not anyone coming in off the street, the high priest, after going through intense purification, outwardly, inwardly, spiritually, in every way conceivable, would go into the holiest, the holy of holies. And only then would he enter, he would enter with the sacrifice, this offering, the blood from this lamb. He wouldn't go in without the blood. He wouldn't go in if he were not clean. A legend has it, we don't see this in Scripture, but legend has it that uh, they would actually put bells on the priest's garments. They would add this on in case he stopped moving because God struck him dead because he wasn't holy enough to enter into the holiest, the holy of holies, right? Um, so this is something that uh, when you take the word boldness and put it here, it just doesn't make any sense because if that's me, I'm like, hey, does anyone want to be high priest today? Every other day of the year is fine, right? But I'd be, I'd be so paranoid, right? You guys, you guys with me? I'd be so paranoid. I'd be like looking for dirt, like under fingernails. I'd be like finding mirrors, and I'd be like in here. I'd be like cleaning my ears out like every six minutes. I'd be all over the place just to make sure I'm clean. I'd be, Lord, is there any sin in me? Reveal this to me. I don't, I don't want to die, right? Uh, you come before God, it's a serious thing. I mean, this is something that only one person did and only one time a year. Okay, so the millions of people following uh, God through the Old Testament law, one person, one time a year, would ever go in there. In your lifetime, there would probably be uh, four, maybe five people that would go in there over the course of your lifetime, all right? So you probably don't even know someone. You might not know someone who knows someone who has ever been into the Holy of Holies. This is a very serious, very severe thing. But now what does the author say? He says, having boldness to enter into the holiest by what? The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. Verse 20, he calls this a new and a living way, which he has consecrated for us. This is not the same entryway that existed before, but this is a new way, which, watch this, is through the veil, that is to say, his Flesh. And this veil was the veil that would separate the holy place from the holy of holies. This is a large veil that they would have to pass through to be able to even enter into this holiest place. 
And so now, New Testament, under the new covenant that God has established through his son, Jesus Christ, that old veil, if you remember, when Jesus died on the cross, that veil was torn in two. There's a new veil that replaces it. What is that veil according to this verse? It's his flesh. Now, watch what just happened. A sneaky thing just happened that uh, probably didn't catch just going through it at that pace. Watch this, verse number 19. There are two ingredients for being able to enter into the true, the better, holy of holies. Verse number 19, what's the first ingredient? So we have boldness to enter in by what? The blood of Jesus. Watch this in verse 20. He's consecrated for us through the veil. What's the veil? The flesh. Understand this. The, the, the blood of Christ gives us boldness to enter in because we've been clean, we've been purified, we've been made righteous by this blood. We've been declared righteous. Watch verse number 20. The body of Christ gives us passage into this holy place. The body of Christ is the veil by which we enter. Now, when we remember uh, Christ through what we call the Lord's table, through communion, what do we partake of? What are the, the elements that are referred to in that ceremony? The blood and the body, right? Because the blood and body of Christ are the way that we come to God. The blood and body of Christ are essential for us to be able to come to the Father. The blood purifies us, gives us boldness. The flesh opens up. It's that veil through which we are able to enter into the presence of God. And so now it's open before us. Now we can have boldness. We don't have to be fearful entering into this. We don't have to be trembling coming into this because why? He's forgotten our sins because we've been declared righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ. There's no need to fear. There's no need to be afraid of because we've been declared righteous. We're purified, we are sanctified, and we are able to go into this holiest place. And watch what, watch what he says. I mean, if you really, if you look at this, before we, before we even continue, because we're coming up, on, uh, we're coming up on, on the imperatives here as we come to verse number 22. What we see here is we see our why. This is our why. Why do we do anything that we do? Because we're declared righteous. The sin that we were never and could never repay, that we could never save ourselves from, that we were never capable of going beyond, this sin has been wiped away once for all by the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, through his broken body, through his perfect blood. He shed these things for us on our behalf. Now we can boldly enter in before God. This is our why. We have access to God, the creator of the universe. We are now able to enter into him. And understand this. This, doesn't just, this isn't just something that, is, uh, that has happened in theory. This is something that's happened in reality. Our identity has been totally changed based on our faith in Jesus Christ. Who you are is forever changed. Old things are passed away. All things become new through Christ. And so as we step into this last portion, there are three things there are three ways in which the gospel actually frees us. The gospel frees us. And this is beautiful just in the way that the author even writes these. Because as we step into them, each of these imperatives actually starts with the phrase, let us. Let us. The very phrasing of it, indicating freedom. Indicating liberty. And there are three ways in which we are freed. 
We're freed relationally. We're freed theologically. We're freed communally. Relationally, theologically, communally. We're going to break those down. Don't be intimidated by these because these are just beautiful things that I think will help us day to day as we live out our Christian life. And before we even step into this, understand this. I want you to understand this. The gospel doesn't force us to obey. The gospel frees us to obey. The gospel doesn't force us to obey. The gospel frees us to obey. Every other system of religion by which we are told to come to God, it's do this, do this, do this, do this, then God will accept you. It forces obedience as an understanding, as a prerequisite to be able to come to God. The gospel is different. The gospel says, hey, I'm going to set you free from this sin, so now you're able to live the life that I've designed for you. I'm going to set you free from this sin, so now you're able to go out and accomplish the things that I've set before you. The gospel doesn't force us into this. It frees us for service. And so watch these areas. Watch these areas. So what do we, what do we do? Look at verse number 22. So verse 21 tells us, having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near. Let us approach the presence of God. Have you ever seen someone, how many of you guys have ever met someone famous? You ever met someone famous? A couple of you guys have. You guys aren't very excited about it. That's cool. How many of the people around you were just like going crazy, right? Um, isn't it funny how like celebrities, they just, people go nuts around this person that they've never met before, they've only ever seen like on a TV or something like that. They just go, they just go insane. Like personally, I don't get it. Like I've seen some famous people I've been like, oh, hey, I don't have anything to talk to them about. Like, oh, you know, watch the movie they're in or not, you know, but, uh, but people go crazy, right? I was listening to the radio um, and I, I, I listen to, I, like, I love sports, I like a lot of sports. So I was listening to a radio and I was listening to ESPN and they, um, this lady, um, she's a really, usually really um, a got, got herself together kind of person. And she was talking about this crazy stuff. She grew up as a sports fan in Chicago um, in, the, in the 90s. And so her idol was, anyone want to guess, sports fan in the 90s, Michael Jordan. And so now as a reporter later, after he had retired, she got to meet Michael Jordan. And she told about all the embarrassing things that she did and said and basically how she creeped out Michael Jordan and how she's waiting for results from the restraining order. <laughs> like, I mean, she's like, I went, oh, she's like, I don't even know what's the most embarrassing things I've ever had in my life. She told these stories about how when she met Michael Jordan, just like all the intelligent circuits in her brain just shut off, and she just did really dumb, embarrassing things, right? And so that's what we do with celebrities. So understand this, understand this. Uh, if we were given the opportunity, and maybe you see those questions or someone's asked you, well, if you could sit down with one person through history, whatever, those are cool hypotheticals, that's great. Understand this, God has offered us the opportunity to draw near to himself. Michael Jordan, whatever celebrity you can think of, creation. The father is the creator. He's the one from which everything originates. And he's called us to him. He's called us to, to draw near to him. And so now the author says, hey, because of all of this, we are free to draw near. This shouldn't be something that you have to be convinced of, right? This shouldn't be something that we have to, that has to be sold. Oh, you can draw near to God. And yet what happens? Sometimes we have to be like, all right, are you reading your Bible? Oh, man, I hope you spend some time in prayer. But what happens? Why does this break down? This should be something that we say, I have the opportunity to seek out the living God. Are you kidding me? The gospel sets me free in this. But understand, remember, this even goes back to, this goes back to, what we talked about, we have an accuser. We have an accuser. 
Because watch how we're called to come to God. Watch how we're called to come to God. Look at the rest of this verse. Let us draw near with what? A true heart. So without hypocrisy, without uh, being multifaceted, with a true heart. In full assurance of faith, no doubt, full of faith, knowing that our salvation is settled. And watch this, verse number two. This is so, so, so important. I think this is the crux of this, of this portion here, this let us statement. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Remember back in verse number two, read this really quick with me. If you just turn a page over, chapter 10, verse number two. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, these sacrifices, if they were able to complete, if they were able to be perfect, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Why? Because that the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. Understand, we have a sacrifice that doesn't have to be repeated. So you know what one of God's greatest yet most uh, underappreciated gifts to us is? A conscience free from sin. A conscience that's free from guilt and shame. We don't have to carry that. We don't have to live with that. And he says, we are called to come into his presence with a conscience sprinkled, being sprinkled from an evil conscience. Our hearts are cleansed from sin. So, so how then, how then, how does this, how does this then mesh with the feeling and the sensation of guilt that comes into our hearts? How should we be responding to the feelings of guilt and shame in our lives? And this is so important because understand this. A shame-filled Christian will result in a shameful Christian. You won't be able to do the things God has called you to do if you're wrestling constantly with guilt and shame. And I don't say this to condemn you. I say this to free you because the gospel doesn't condemn us. The gospel frees us. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world that the world through him might be saved. So how do we deal with this? This is so important. Step number one is this. Step number one is this. There's two steps. Step number one is this. Only two steps. Very easy. Easy to say, harder to do. Still, very simple. How do we respond to this feeling of guilt? First is this. Ask yourself this question. Is there known sin? Is there known sin? When there's guilt in my life, is there known sin? Is there something that I have done that is sinning against God? If the answer is yes, repent. Repent. Turn from that sin. Confess it to God and repent. And so you're, okay, Nate, I'm with you so far. I'm, I, I feel you to this point. Okay, then what? Step number two. This known sin has been repented of. Step number two. Rest in God's forgiveness. Rest in God's forgiveness. You see, the devil doesn't only want to accuse you to God, to the Father. The devil doesn't only want to accuse you to others. The devil wants to accuse you to you. The devil wants to get into your head and get into your heart and say, Glenn, you did it again, man. Glenn, God can't use you. You keep behaving that way. Oh, man, Tom. Oh, man, you really stepped in it this time. Oh, man, Tom, I can't believe you would do this again. Wow, unbelievable. And the devil comes about accusing and not, this is not conviction. This is bringing shame and bringing guilt. You understand, when our sins have been repented of, understand this, that our sins are separated from us. We are forgiven once for all. And the fact that as a believer, that there are times that we sin, we're called to confess and we're called to turn from those sins. But understand this, your holiness is intact because your holiness is not dependent on you. 
Your holiness is dependent on someone greater. And so how do we combat the lies of the devil? What's the greatest weapon against lies? It's the truth. I think this is why Jesus said in John chapter 8, you shall know the truth. The truth will set you free. Set you free from what? Sets you free from deception. So what is the truth then? The truth is this, you're a new creation. The truth is this, that you are God's workmanship. The truth is this, that you are part of a chosen people and a royal priesthood. The truth is this, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You say, but I don't feel saved. First John says this, if your heart condemns you, God's greater than your heart. Your emotions say, oh, I'm not saved, or oh, God doesn't love me. Listen, God says, hey, I am greater than these things. You are a child of God. You're raised up and seated with him in heavenly places. You are his heir. You can know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so when Satan comes at you and says, hey, this is all you are, this is who you are, and all you'll ever be, the fact is, is that you can rest knowing that your identity with Christ is sealed. You are in the Father, and Christ is in you, and you are not able to be separated from him. Not height, not depth, nothing is capable of separating you from the love of your Father. Your identity has been seated with him, sealed with him, and you are. it's not possible for who God knows you to be to change. God has declared you to be so, and he never changes. He cannot lie. Both of those also found in Hebrews. So what we see is that we see we are established in him. That's why we're able to answer him boldly, because we're not dependent on who we can be. We're freed to come before him. And understand this. This is one of the greatest lies of the devil, is that he says, you're not worthy of coming before God. You're not worthy of these things. And the fact is, is that yes, in a fleshly sense, we aren't, but we're declared righteous. And because of this, we are able to go in. Would you imagine, imagine with me this situation. If I were to say, if I were to come to you and say, hey, listen, I've got too much money. I don't have that problem. Okay, confess, don't have that problem. If I were to come to you and I say, I have too much money. You know what, Miles, um, I have this bank account that's, it's got about, about a quarter million dollars in it. I just have too much money. I need to just take this bank account. You know what I don't think Miles is saying? You might say it on the outside, but on the inside, on the outside, he might say, oh, man, I'm not worthy of that. On the inside, you know what he's saying? Yes! Ha, 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 bill's paid. All right, I'm able to catch up. I'm going to buy a, buy a house. I mean, he's like, I just need a one-bedroom house. I can get something decent. I can settle down, you know, and uh, pay off some bills, what, you know, some student loans. You know? So he's like, oh, man, this is, oh, this is great, right? He wouldn't hesitate for that. And yet God calls us into his presence as the gospel frees us to be able to come in before him. Man. I just don't feel good enough for God today. You know the only way that God's going to be able to sanctify you and cleanse you and bring you to that next step in your Christian walk? Jesus was praying in John chapter 17, and he prays, Father, he says, sanctify them as followers through thy truth. You know what he says truth is? Thy word is truth. Where will all shall a young man cleanse his ways by taking heither to according to his word. You want to know God? Know the word of God. He's revealed himself here. That's the reason we study the scriptures. We go to the scriptures, go to the word of God to know the God of the word. That's why we do it. It's how it works. And so as we are called here, this is a great privilege and a great opportunity. And just because Satan speaks lies about you, you know what that should do? That should pull us further into the scripture because we need that truth to establish ourselves, which brings us here to, to, number, to our, our second imperative. Look at verse number 23. So let us, verse number 22, let us draw near, verse number 23, 
Let us hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering. So we see in verse 22, we are freed. We are freed relationally with God. We're able to come in before him. Verse 23, we are freed theologically. You say, okay, well, I'm not a theologian, so, all right? Understand this. Theology is the study, the knowledge, the understanding of God. We go to the word of God. Why? To know the God of the word. Every time you open up your Bible, you are practicing theology. Doesn't mean you have to be a theologian. It doesn't mean that it has to be something that's overly complex or that. Yes, you know what the fact is? If you're studying the word of God, you're going to be mystified by who God is sometimes. You're going to be standing in awe. You're not going to understand everything about who God is. Why? Because we have a God that goes beyond our understanding. It blows it away. I don't, I'm not able to fathom half the truth that I've spoken to you tonight. Why? Because God goes beyond my imagination and understanding. But yet, here he is. He reveals himself to us. And so, we are freed in this way. So, watch, watch what he says here, though. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Hold fast means this, to keep, to seize, to possess, without wavering. It means unmovable. Why? Why are we able to hold fast to these things? Why should we hold fast to these things? Look at the parentheses in the verse. He's faithful, that promised. He's faithful, that promised. Why are we able to do these things that he's called us to? He's faithful, that promised. All these things uh, that we've read here are accomplished by a faithful God. Without him, you know, actually this, this term, hold fast, it, it's a nautical term, without wavering. It's kind of a nautical phrase here. What he's saying is this, without him, without him and his faithfulness, we're unstable. There is wavering. There is drifting that takes place. Can I confess something to you? I'm unstable. Like we know. <laughs> I can see that. I'm unstable, and so are you. We live in a culture of instability. Uh, we look at the world around us. We're, we're all unstable. Why? Because we're sinful. We're broken. We live in a culture that's constantly adrift. You look at what happened 10 years ago, such and such is morally acceptable, and then today it's unacceptable. And some of those things being godly things, now all of a sudden we find that uh, there are those that are trying to say this thing that God has said to be true is now untrue. What are they doing? Why are there even Christians that are doubting these things? Because they're not holding fast to these things that they know to be true. They're not holding fast to the word of God. They've stepped out of stability and traded stability for instability. They're following after what they perceive to be acceptable and right and good. And the fact is that we live in a culture that these things are celebrated. There are statements that our generation is making, our generation is saying, to find yourself, you need to look within yourself. That's a recipe for instability. You're asking for instability. Uh, we're being told that people should not criticize the life choices of others. We're being told that it's to be fulfilled. We need to pursue the things that we want the most. You know what? I don't even know what I want the most. Because I'm unstable, all right? Where does my stability come from? Where does our stability come from? It comes from holding fast without wavering the truth of the word of God. And the gospel sets us free to be stable. Isn't that a wonderful thing? The gospel sets us free in this. Because the word of God, it abides forever. Forever, O oh Lord, the word is settled in heaven. And finally, uh, finally, we're done. Look at this, verse number 24. Let us consider one another. The gospel sets us free communally. Understand that we are Christians not only for our sakes, we are Christians for the sake of others. God didn't save us to a life of isolation. Selfish Christianity, isolationistic Christianity, that's, those are oxymorons. You don't find those in the scripture. 
The spiritual life is meant to be lived in community. You can't live it out in a bubble. And in fact, what are we called to do? Look here at verse uh, number 24. Let's keep going through the rest of this. Let's consider one another. Why? To provoke unto love and good works. What's that word provoke? It means to move. It means to stir up. If I were to provoke you, I were to get you to do something by reacting, right? I'm called to provoke you to good works. Understand this. You're either a missionary or you're a mission field. You're either someone who is trying to stir up others towards good works or someone else is going around trying to stir you up to good works. And you know when Christianity is at its best is when we're all going around trying to stir each other up unto good works. When we're all going around and trying to motivate and trying to move others towards doing the things that God has called us to. Look at verse number 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. He says there are some people that just give up on Christians even coming together. And I want you to understand this because I think this is a very important truth that we see laid out here very clearly in this passage. Uh, The assembly of the believers is something that God has called us to. The idea of a healthy Christian disconnected from fellowship within a church is a foreign concept in the New Testament. You do not find people who say they love Jesus but hate his bride. Understand that if you were to come to me and you were to say, hey, Nate, oh, man, I love what you do, and oh, man, I appreciate you so much, and you're such a good friend. Man, I can't stand your wife. We're not friends, okay? If you're like, oh, man, yeah, oh, wow, you're such a blessing. Wow, your kids are ugly. I don't like you, okay? Like, we're not going to get along here. This is not a good relationship that we have going on, right? And yet sometimes, as Christians, we behave this way towards the body of Christ, the church, where the scripture says that Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it, right? And yet what do we do? Does the church have faults? Yes, okay, I work here, fault number one, okay? So the church has faults, right? You're like, unstable for sure. This guy's crazy. Okay, so understand, yes, the church has faults. Yes, the church has failures. Why? Because we're not glorified yet. One day we'll be perfect, but it won't be for a while. But Christ loved the church. He gave himself for it. So we're called to come together. We're called to consider one another. And understand, if we're not assembling, if we're not coming together, we can't be considering one another. We're called to gather. We're called into fellowship. You can't say that you love Jesus but abandon the things that he loves. Understand that the the church is God's plan A for the world, and there's no plan B. The church is the institution by which he has ordained the gospel to be sent out. And you you can criticize that. You can complain about that. That's that's between you and God. But that's the model he chose. As we look at the New Testament, time after time and after time, we see the institution, we see the people, not just an institution, but a movement of people that has gone out, been filled with the Holy Spirit, and reaches their communities with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you look at these things and you say, okay, you know what? Uh, these are what we're called to. These are the things that we are not just told to do, but we are freed to do. There's a big difference there, Okay. If you go out and you detach verses 19 through 25 from the first half of this passage, you know what you're going to walk into? You're going to walk into what we call legalism. You're going to walk into a set of beliefs that goes, do this, do this, do this. Okay, my job is done. We do these things because what God's already done for us. 
God has done these things, and because God has done these things, because he has freed us from sin, because he has paid this debt, because he has opened up the way into the holiest place through a new and a better way, because Jesus is a better savior, a better sacrifice, a better high priest, because he is the fulfillment of all these things that our hearts desire, because he has taken us broken and weak and guilty and shameful, and he has clothed us in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, never to be naked and abandoned again because of these things, we're free. We're free. We are free to, to draw near to God. We are, free to, uh, we are free to hold fast to this truth that he's teaching us. And, and we are free, finally, we are free to consider one another and to extend this love, extend this care to those around us. Let's pray and we'll be out of here tonight. Father, we thank you for the